All right. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are excited that you're here with us today. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman, and I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. And uh, we are thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. If you're a guest, we would love an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. And one way that you can do that for us is we've got a connection card. You can uh, fill it out, drop that in the offering plate when it's passed a little bit later. That would be a help to us as we get to know you a little bit better. And then all of us can use the backside here uh, for prayer requests. And actually the front side as well is you, if you have any uh, spiritual decisions you're making and things like that, you can drop that in the offering plate. Uh, when it passes later. A couple things real quick. First of all, I want to remind or reiterate what Ricky shared a moment ago about the caroling tonight. Uh, you may not know what we mean by summer caroling. It's essentially just we come together as a church family, and uh, I do mean family because kids are there, teenagers are there, the adults are there. We all go out together uh, to three or four different nursing homes um, in, our, in our community and sing some of uh, old gospel songs with them and then uh, visit with them for a few minutes, and then we'll come back here, and there'll be some ice cream uh, as a fellowship. So I encourage you to come be a part of that. Meet here at 5 o'clock tonight to be a part of it. Also, I want to reiterate every Sunday, I'm going to say this every, every Sunday, be here on Sunday, August the 27th. I'd love for you to be here every Sunday, but make sure you're here Sunday, August 27th. Uh, for the morning service as well as a family celebration that will be happening at 5 o'clock that evening. You absolutely don't want to miss that, and we need you here. Plan to be a part of that. And then one other thing, just a reminder, those of you that were here last week, you're aware of it. Uh, my family, some of them were out of town last week, and they're like, Dad, when did the cross get up there? What, what's up with the notes and stuff? So just to let you know what's going on here, last week uh, we had the cross up here, and we at the end of the service gave an opportunity for us to write down the different things of the works of the flesh, sin and things like that, that we need to repent of and crucify to the cross and, and walk away from them. And we talked about how it's not us, it's what Christ has done on our behalf, and that we, uh, as a result of his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection, that we can have power over sin. And so I encourage you that if, if your note is up here, it hasn't been peeked at, it's still here. If your note was here, my question is not how did you do and were you a good little Christian? My question is, did you stay firm on I am committing that to the Holy Spirit and I'm trusting his power and his goodness to walk through and be victorious in this thing that I'm facing all because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Hopefully when you came in this morning, you picked up a worship guide. On the back of the worship guide, there's a place to take notes. If you've been a part of our church for uh, the last year or so, you know we've been walking through the book of Acts. And right now we're not in the book of Acts, but if you look at the bottom of the sermon notes, you see next week we jump back into the book of Acts and we plan on finishing Acts probably about the second or third week of January, and then we'll move on uh, forward from there. But this morning, we're in the final week of a series called Empowered, and it's about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to grab that uh, and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. It's right after uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible near you in a chair underneath you, around you. And you can use that. And please know you are more than welcome to take that home with you. If you or someone you know needs a Bible, in fact, last week someone left and they said, hey, Alan, I'm taking a Bible with me. Those Bibles are there for you to take and use, all right? My question is, as we get ready to start this sermon, is do you ever get weary with this world? Do you ever find yourself weary with the troubles of this world? 
I see some heads nodding, I hear some amens, and Howard was talking about uh, physical pain, and that's one way that we can be weary of the world, but I'm not just talking about being tired or worn out or stressed. That's really not my emphasis when I ask, are you weary of this world? I'm asking, does the chaos and confusion and evil and sin and wildness of this world ever cause you to just cry out and just cry out like, I don't know what to do? Does the craziness of this world ever cause you to cry out for help to God? This past week, I was talking with a friend of mine, and we were talking about just something that had happened that was pretty horrific. And I echo the words of my friend as she said, I just need and I want to feel the power and the victory of Jesus through all of this weariness that this world has to offer. I don't know where this morning finds you. Perhaps you come in this morning, just like we talked about this cross a moment ago, and you're walking in victory, and you're acknowledging what God is doing in your life, and the sufferings and craziness of this world isn't really weighing heavy on you, but I guarantee you there's probably several or many of us that did walk into this room, and for whatever reason, the weariness of this world has become overwhelming for us. I've got good news for you. There's an answer to this weariness of this world. And we're going to look to God's Word to see what it has to say. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. I want to acknowledge that Paul, as he writes this, is kind of picking up in the middle of something that he shared earlier. In fact, if you go back and go to our sermon archive, about three or four weeks ago, I preached from the beginning of Romans chapter 8. And so I'm picking up where I left off from that sermon. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 30. Here's what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are, have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience or forbearance. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of, uh, sorry, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's no way for us in the short amount of time we have together this morning to really completely unpack and tackle this passage of Scripture, but I'm going to try to hit some of the parts that I want to see how the Holy Spirit empowers us to live our lives even in the midst of a crazy world. Look at verse 18. 
In verse 18, we see that he is setting up a comparison. This whole text is comparing two things. And that comparison is found in verse 18. That is where he's comparing this present time or this present age or this situation we find ourselves in in this world. And he compares that with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So he's saying that for now, we have problems, we have sufferings, we have difficulties, and all of these are rampant and and obvious and wearisome. But one day, praise Jesus, all of this will be changed. I figured I might get an amen there, but I guess not, because the reality is we are facing difficulty right now, but we have a promise and a hope that it will be different in the future. Look at verse 17. He's already set that up there. In verse 17, he's talking about how we are children of, if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, that we are his children, and we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. And in verse 17, he says that we are heirs of God, and we're fellow heirs of Christ, and that we are suffering with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So just as Christ suffered, so we suffer. And the hope that we have is that one day we will be glorified with him in his very presence. See, we're living on a divide right now, and that divide is between what is and what will come. What is and what will come. So let's look at some things. The first note should be popping up on the screen, and here's what it says. The current age is full of suffering, which brings about groaning. Feel free to use your notes there if you want to jot that down. The current age is full of suffering, which brings about groaning. Suffering. Let's think about that for a minute. What, is, what does that mean? In verse 18, when he says that we're suffering, when I say that we are suffering, what do I mean by that? It, it means that first and foremost, we are suffering with Christ. As we're seeking to faithfully follow him, we're suffering with him. But there's also other suffering that we face in life. Difficulties, struggles, frustrations, uncertainties, sickness, death, disease. And then ultimately, it includes these difficulties, these struggles. It, it includes um, di- uh, the atrocities of this world, the atrocities both natural and man-made. It involves sin and evil and the chaos and confusion of this world. Everything that we're facing in this world that's less than ideal is either directly or indirectly a, a consequence or result of sin in the world. All of this is because our world is completely distorted by sin's presence, by sin's power, and by sin's consequences. In fact, look down in verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says that all of creation is subjected to futility. What in the world is he talking about? He says all of creation is subject to futility and and that they didn't, creation doesn't uh, get subjected to it willingly, but instead it comes upon them by God. What is all of that about? He's saying that because of the curse of sin on all creation from way back in the Garden of Eden in the first few chapters of Genesis, that the world has been impacted by the curse of sin. Because we are suffering creation as a creation, and because we are suffering as Christians, we groan. Did you see the word groan pop up three different times in this text? It says that all of creation groans. It says that all of us who are Christians groan. And the reality is this. Whenever we face difficulty in life, we can take confidence that one day our groans will turn into glory. 
And, and, and here's the deal, we can understand that because every creation, all of creation is groaning, that all of us are not alone in our suffering that we're facing. And so there's this sense of a collective lament where all of the world and all of humans are languishing under sin and the impending judgment because of sin. You're like, Alan, like when does the good news start? You're just hitting on over and over again all of the suffering that's in the world. Well, for us to understand the coming good news, we have to understand the bad news. So why does he say, through 22, talk about that? In verses 19 through 22, in verse 22 specifically, he says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It says that all of creation, because of the punishment and curse of sin, is groaning out. And the reason creation is groaning out is because creation longs for the day that a new creation is coming. A new creation that is free from death. A new creation that is free from decay. And then when you look down in verse 23, it says not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And what he's saying is that we as Christians groan because we long for the day when our broken, sinful nature and our body will be redeemed and restored and we'll experience the resurrection body that is free from sin and free from suffering. The older I get, the more I realize I understand why it is that we so appreciate songs about heaven. Back in the day as a kid, I knew all of the words of all the songs in the hymnal. This is a hymnal. You know what a hymnal is? It's this book that we used to sing from instead of the wall, right? And if you go sing with us tonight, we'll sing the songs that were in the hymnal, and we'll use a version of a hymnal. It won't be a big book. It'll be a little booklet, right? But this morning, we sang a couple of those hymns. I'd have to look at the screen at all because I know those words. They're just embedded in who I am. And back in the day, we would sing songs like, when the roll is called up, yonder I'll be there. I just loved it because the word yonder was in there. And I didn't really understand why we sang it so happily. And we're talking about when we die. And I don't know why we're singing so happily. But the reality is this. The more we get older, the more we see of this world, the more we should long to be in the presence of God. There is a day coming when our bodies will be redeemed if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And until that day comes, we are, as Paul says, groaning and longing for that day. Whenever the word groan is used, it typically would have a negative connotation. The reality is the word groaning here has both a positive and a negative connotation. The, the negative is quite obvious. We're groaning because it's painful, it's distressful, we're facing all these difficulties, and so that's understandable. But it's also positive because as we groan, we groan with hope, knowing that the day is coming, the glory of God is coming, and we will be better off because of it. So I've got a question to ask you before we move to the next point. I said in this one that the current age is full of suffering, which brings about groaning. And so my question for you is this, maybe you want to jot it down. As you experience suffering of this world, do you cry out to God for help? As you experience suffering in this world, do you cry out to God 
for help. And I'm not just saying because you got to get out of the mess or the pickle you're in. I'm saying because you have confidence that there is a God who is listening and capable of getting us through this mess we find ourselves in. Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Howard is far from, far from Paul. Howard mentioned a moment ago about how the kids studied Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in that story from the Old Testament that's not just a story but actually took place, we see those three guys get thrown in a fiery furnace because they were not going to worship these false gods. And yet, when they were in that fiery furnace, a fourth figure was in there because Jesus himself was with them. And sustaining them, they were able to then get out of the fiery furnace without being harmed. And what we need to know is this, that whenever we face difficulty and suffering in this world, we should cry out to God for help, knowing that he will answer. Here's the second point of the sermon. It'll be on the screen. It says, there's a coming glory. I've already alluded to this. As bad as the sufferings are, they pale in comparison to the glory that's coming. Look back at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As horrible and horrific as some of these things we face in life are, the reality is we can have confidence that if we placed our faith and our trust in Jesus, that one day we will see God in all of his glory and not only see him but be in his presence in, or in his throne room and therefore it Pells everything else in comparison. God's glory will make all things right. God's glory will bring about a new creation. God's glory will bring about resurrected bodies. God's glory will forever cast the power and presence and consequence of sin away from us. God's glory will make all things right. I, I want us to look at verse 21. In verse 21, it specifically addresses creation, but the reality is it goes on from there and would refer to our hope as well. It says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what Paul is saying is that in light of the sin and in light of the fall, in light of the chaos of this world, God's plan all along has been and will be and it will come to conclusion God will liberate all of creation and bring about salvation. Then if you look down at verses 28 through 30, which we could spend a whole sermon on those verses, and I'm not going to do that, but in verses 28 through 30, where it begins talking about one of the most famous verses in the Scripture that talks about, we know that for the lo those who love God, all things work together for good. And it goes on from there. Verses 28 through 30 also point to the coming glory. The reason we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord is because even in our sufferings, that will one day be washed away when we're in the presence of God. And so there's this hope throughout all of this that there is a coming glory. God does work together good things together for the good of those who love him. It's not always the way that we would picture it on this earth, but it is definitely whenever we get to be in the presence of God. It's not to minimize the thing you're facing. It's not to minimize the thing that your friends are facing. It's not to say that the sufferings we're not facing aren't real. It's just that we have a hope that is guaranteed because there's a coming glory in spite of the chaos and suffering and confusion around us. I want us to look at verses 29 and 30. 
He talks about how he is, uh, again, we could spend all day talking about this. He foreknows, he predestines, he justifies, and he glorifies. But I want to look at the ending of verse 30. It says, those whom he has saved, God has saved, he also glorified. What does glorified mean? It doesn't mean that he's making us somebody special, but rather to glorify us means that we get to be in God's presence, away from sin, away from this broken world and body, and in God's glorified presence, and therefore the writers of the New Testament use the word glorified. It's interesting to me that it's written in past tense. It's as if it's already happened. He says those he's called, those he's justified, those he's also glorified. How can a coming glory be said in the past tense? The reality is, is Paul can say it in the past tense because it's as certain as is, it is as certain as if it's already happened. So there is a coming glory. So before we go to the next point, I want to ask you this question. Maybe you want to jot it down. As you experience suffering in this world, do you live like you really believe God's glory is coming? In the chaos of this world, do you live in the reality that you truly believe that God's glory is coming? Because if we live in the reality that God's glory is coming, then we don't have to live a defeated life. The suffering doesn't all of a sudden go away. It doesn't all of a sudden get flushed down the drain. It's just the reality that now I take confidence that my vision is not on the suffering. My vision is on this coming glory of God's. And therefore, our perspective changes. My next sermon note that will be on the screen, hope sustains believers through it all. It goes hand in hand with this idea that there's a coming glory. Because there's a coming glory, then in the midst of our suffering, we can know that there's hope that sustains us through all of it. It's quite interesting how verse 20 ends. Let's look at the end of verse 20, at least in the ESV how it ends, and then we'll look at verse 21. He's talking about how all of creation is subjected to futility, and then it's interesting that he finishes verse 20 with the word hope. It says that God has subjected creation to futility or the curse of sin in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God's judgment on sin is not entirely punitive, but rather God's judgment on sin is also redemptive. And the reason that he brought judgment on, on sin and on creation is because it's in hope that all of creation would one day be restored. Now, I, I want us to think about what the biblical word hope means. I say this all the time, and I'll probably be able to say it 30 years from now. It's not the hope that my Dallas Cowboys will go to the Super Bowl, because that's a wishful thinking that's never probably ever going to happen you heard me say it first but the reality and also it really doesn't matter football really doesn't matter okay but the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is a hope that goes way beyond a wishful oh I hope so this really take no this kind of hope is a hope that is definite absolute it is true and so when it says in hope, it's saying because. Uh, some phrases that are used in this text that refers to the hope that we have is things like eager longing, in hope, waiting eagerly, in this hope, wait for it with patience or forbearance because we know that God's glory is coming, therefore we do have hope. There's a joyful anticipation and longing for what's to come. 
everything in this whole text, verses 18 through 30, point to the fact that, that um, there's a coming glory that's definite or certain. There's confidence as we wait for, with great anticipation, knowing it will come. There's lots of verbiage in this text that states definitive nature, guaranteeing it will come. As I said, it's not wishful, it's not circumstantial, it's not fleeting, but it's true, it will happen. Now, I want to be really careful because I'm a man and not a, a woman, and because I've never given birth to children, although I've been in the room when three children were born. It, look at verse 23. In verse 23, it describes that creation is groaning out, and how does it say creation is groaning out? It's groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Why does Paul choose childbirth to express the groaning that creation is, is, is making over the difficulty and sin and the curse of sin. Well, one reason I would think is because childbirth is undoubtedly painful, but it's more along the lines of that childbirth typically, and I understand that not all childbirth ends the way I'm describing. Sometimes tragedy happens, but for the most part, childbirth, the pain that's associated with it, and this is the part where I've got to be really careful, the pain that's associated with childbirth is all worth it for the child that's coming. It's like you could talk to a mama that gave birth, and she could almost maybe, I don't know, I, I maybe say, I, I don't hardly remember that, because she knows that she's giving birth that it's going to pay off. It's suffering that isn't hopeless. And so when creation suffers, it's suffering as if it's going through childbirth knowing that there is life coming out on the other end of the suffering. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul does a good job of defining what hope is and what hope is not. I guess he's related to me. It says in here, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, it's a hope that is definite. And therefore, even though we don't see the glory of God in its fullest, we know that his glory is coming. Even though we don't see heaven with our eyes, we know the day is coming where we'll be in the presence of God. It says this hope begins at salvation. And then it carries us all throughout life into eternity in heaven. What is this hope that he's talking about? This hope that he's talking about is not just wishful thinking. This hope that he's talking about is not just some kind of motivational speaking. Well, Alan's saying that something better's coming so I can trudge through what I'm facing. No, that's not the hope. The hope that we have is not a better day's coming so just uh, pull out yourself up by your bootstraps and get going. No, the reality is this. Our suffering that's here on this earth pales in comparison to the suffering that happens in hell if we don't trust in Jesus as our Savior. And so just as it pales in comparison to the glory that's coming if we do place our faith and trust in Jesus, it, it's really, this earth is the most heaven some people will ever see. So let me explain what our hope is found in. Our hope is found in the one who died on this cross for our sins. Our hope is found in the one who was not only 
crucified on the cross but was resurrected on the third day. Our hope is found in Jesus who not only was crucified and resurrected but ascended into heaven. The one who is on the throne. The one who's coming back to bring us to himself. The reality is this. All of us are sinners. All of us have sinned against God and because of our sin we've been placed under the curse of sin and we have been removed from the presence of God and we can have nothing to do with God and he had nothing to do with us outside of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So my question is this, do you find yourself trying to live life, press through these sufferings, hope for a better day, go to church, be a good person, be a a good moral person, uh, do the right thing, be a good neighbor, all of these things, or are you pushing through life based on what Christ has done on your behalf? Have you turned from your sins, repented of your sins, trusted in Jesus' finished work on the cross, knowing that you and I deserve death ourselves? We deserve separation from God from all eternity, but thank God he sent Jesus to bring us a living hope. Our church is called Living Hope, not because it's a fancy, nice-sounding name. Rather, it's Living Hope because it points to Jesus. In 1 Peter, it says that Jesus is our living hope because he died for our sins and was raised on the third day. So my question is, I'm not asking you to be... See, here's the deal. If you go, Alan just said life is difficult and better days are coming, and I'm just going to live in that hope that better days are coming, we're actually not walking in biblical hope. We're just wishful thinking that our day is going to get better. Some of you, I hate to say this, your suffering is actually going to get worse. Life is actually going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. Did you know that when you say yes to Jesus, he doesn't all of a sudden magically transport you to walk through Central Park with him and enjoy the scenery and and life is fine and dandy? No, the reality is life still stinks at times, but it's glorious because God is with us. All right? So there's a hope. There is a hope that's definite. My uh, My question is, have you placed your faith in the hope who is named Jesus Christ. I I want us to look at the role of the Holy Spirit. We're we're talking about how we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. What does he have to do with this hope that's found? Look with me at at verse 23. It says that we we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What in the world is that all about? We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. What, what is the first fruits of something? Okay, It's the, the, the thing that comes from the harvest, like I'm a farm boy, I don't know all of this, but you, you, you take, um, you take the, the first fruits that come from whatever harvest you have, right? And that should be tasty and good. It should be maybe the best that there is. But is that all the fruit that there is? Absolutely not. There's still a field or a tree full of more fruit that is coming. Instead, it's a sign or a promise of the rest of the harvest that's coming in. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus. And that is our guarantee of the hope that we have in him. Just as good as the Holy Spirit is to us, he's a sign and promise of the glory of the age to come. He has and he is bringing blessing, but it's a foretaste of even better things ahead and coming relief. You see, hope has a name and his name is Jesus. And Jesus has sent us his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing this fulfilled real hope that we have. So, Before we move to my final point, I want to ask you a question. You may want to jot it down. As you experience suffering in life, do you allow the Holy Spirit to empower you with the hope of Christ? 
As you walk through the suffering of this life, do you allow the Holy Spirit to empower you with the hope of Jesus Christ? The last point I want you to see is this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. There is a coming glory. There is a hope that's found in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is our first fruit of that hope. And along the way, we're still going to face sufferings. And as we do, the good news is that the Holy Spirit helps us in those weaknesses. Look at verse 26. The beginning of verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He, he helps us in the midst of our suffering. Not only is the first fruit that, which brings hope, He actually helps us in the midst of our difficulties. Do you remember that Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit oftentimes as the comforter? that he was sending the comforter or the counselor. And the reality is this, that those of us that have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. And because of that, he is present with us to help us in our difficulties. I don't want us to miss what verse 26 and 27 says. I said that this sermon's title is From Groans to Glory, and the reality is we've talked about two groans so far. We've talked about how all of creation groans, and we talk about how we as Christians groan, but did you see in verses 26 and 27 that the Holy Spirit himself groans as well, and that he groans with us? It says in 26, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes or prays for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts that's God knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God do not read through that ho-hum in nature this is a big deal the Holy Spirit groans for you in the midst of your suffering as he's bringing your suffering to the presence of the father and praying on your behalf his groans come in the form of intercession on our behalf. You see, the Holy Spirit is groaning with us because He is present with us. He's affected right alongside of all of creation and you, and therefore He sees and hears our groanings. He's moved with compassion, and He begins to groan with us, but He groans with a hope because He's taking those groanings to the Father who hears the prayers, bringing hope to our situation. See, He groans right alongside of us in prayer to the Father on our behalf. Is it just me, or do you relate to what the end of verse 26 says? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Do you ever find yourself going, I, I don't really know how to pray? Like, this is too baffling for me to figure out. The good news is that in those moments, we don't just sit there paralyzed, but rather we have the Holy Spirit praying for us, and He is praying on our behalf. And when we don't know what to pray, how to pray, or what to say, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. How exciting is that? I've said it time and time again, and I'll say it probably till I die. In the Baptist church, all too often, we act like the Holy Spirit is something you see, I said something, which is wrong right there. Something to be scared of. Oh, don't, don't talk about the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be swinging for many rafters. 
Don't be talking about the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be dancing in church. Don't talk about the Holy Spirit because those are those fanaticals. No, the reality is this. We as Baptists all too often, you're like, I don't even know what a Baptist is. It's okay because we're a church that follows Jesus. We just happen to be within the Baptist tradition. The reality is that, that the Holy Spirit all too often is missed out in a believer's life because we act as if he is something to be scared of when in reality he is empowering us to live for Jesus. And so if we say, I don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit, you're like, I would never say that, but our actions say otherwise. Then are you saying you don't want the Holy Spirit to pray for you? You don't, you don't, you don't want a, a person of the Trinity to be praying to the Father on your behalf? Like, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit in our lives, and one way He empowers us is the reality that right now, as we speak, in the midst of your groanings, He is praying in the Father's presence on your behalf. Now, my intention is not to run down any other churches, and I didn't even have this on my notes, but have, have, do you know others that will say, uh, you know what, I'm going to pray to Saint so-and-so, and we're going to see if Saint so-and-so will pray. The reality is this. Why would we go to a person, alive or dead, when the Holy Spirit himself prays for us? The Holy Spirit... God himself, this is mind-blowing, God himself prays to God himself about me and my needs. That is incredible. If you, if you read the verse further, you'll see that the Holy Spirit prays according to the will of the Father. Therefore, if you and I struggle in praying according to the will of the Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf, and therefore our prayers go to the Father in the will of the Father. Pretty incredible stuff. Now, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is, Holy Spirit's got it, you don't ever pray. Just let him go the Father for you. No, no, no. Part of him groaning on our behalf is for us to come to the Father in prayer, and then he takes our mumbling and stumbling and grumbling and groaning and confusion, and he prays on our behalf. Pretty incredible stuff. The Holy Spirit is more than our helper. Holy Spirit is more than our comforter. Holy Spirit is more than our counselor. Holy Spirit is not just someone that we can go to whenever we're scared at night. No, the Holy Spirit, God himself, is praying on our behalf. Our prayers are amplified. Our prayers are purified. Our prayers are intensified by the Holy Spirit himself as he prays on our behalf. So my question for you, and this one is this, as you experience suffering, are you truly aware of the incredible help of the Holy Spirit. Take confidence that the Holy Spirit not only sees you, not only knows you, but He is literally praying for you. I don't know what suffering you're in the midst of right now. But whatever suffering you're in the midst of right now, I say out loud that I realize and you must realize and we must realize for one another that the suffering you're facing is real. The suffering you're facing is powerful. We can't deny that. We can't ignore it. The suffering we're facing is impacting us. It's causing all of creation to groan with us. But there's hope. What has you trapped this morning? What difficulty are you facing? What suffering are you facing? For some of you, you're given into the flesh. You're in the grips of addiction and sin. 
And maybe last week you even nailed it up here, and just this past week you've still been living right in the midst of it all. Others of you are struggling in your relationships, marriage relationships, friendships, child, parent, co-workers. You're struggling in your relationships. You don't know if they're even going to survive to next week. Maybe for some of us it's anxiety and depression. And maybe you've experienced horrific, unspeakable things that's caused incredible, immense trauma in your life. Whatever it is that you're facing, there is hope. There is hope. Believers, the Holy Spirit resides within you, and He's praying to the Father for you right now. So my encouragement to you is, in the midst of your difficulties, groan grown away knowing that it points both towards the pain you're experiencing but more importantly it points to the hope of the coming glory grown away knowing that the holy spirit is taking those groans to the father in prayer for you on your behalf you see paul paints a beautiful picture here he he, he paints a picture of the painful dimensions of life in the present age compared to the backdrop of the future glory and Walk with you for all eternity. There will be a day when all will bow before you. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face.
by something, a choice you made, or whether or not, uh, the reality is it's suffering nonetheless. And the truth of the matter is all of us face suffering in our life. And whatever your suffering is may look different than what my suffering is, but at the same time, um, we're, we're not trying to compare sufferings is what I'm trying to say. And the suffering that you're facing does not make you less of a Christian because you have this suffering and they only have that suffering. Does that make sense? Kind of like that parable that Jesus tells about where there's two guys praying at the temple, you know, and, and there's the Pharisee praying and then there's the sinner praying. And, and the, I, don't quote me because I didn't get prepared to share this, and so I may be paraphrasing this a little bit more than I should because I might not have all the details right. But the, the Pharisee is standing upright and kind of looking down his nose, right? And the other guy is, is like kneeling at the altar, and he's crying, and he's praying. He's crying out to God for help. This guy's groaning, and this guy's over here going, look at me. I've got it together, and I'm literally not like this young punk over here. We as the church, and I say the church, I'm not talking about living hope, but we as the church as a whole, for, all, for way too long, we give a picture that if you've got this suffering or this sin or this thing, you're less than. If we're going to be the church, if we're going to be the church to each other, if we're going to be family, if we're going to be a place where everyone belongs, and don't get me wrong, we're not going to contradict God's word, so don't take that further than what it's intended. If we're, if we're going to be a place where everybody belongs at the t supper table, everybody is a part of the church family, then we don't look down our nose at someone else. So I don't know what your suffering is. I'm not making light of it. What I am saying is this, you matter. You are important. And you, in the midst of the thing you're dealing with, are still valuable for the kingdom. And God can redeem whatever you're facing. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and see what He alone can do. All right. That's two weeks in a row I've preached part two. I don't know if I'll preach part two tomorrow, uh, next week or not, but we'll be back in the book of Acts. All right, go ahead and uh, turn the lights on real quick. We're going to hand out uh, some of these guides. I think maybe some have already gotten passed out, but if you have not gotten a guide yet, they're going to come along. Uh, we ask that one per household 
And uh, so go ahead and let them know that you need a copy of that. This has all the information you need for the fall. It doesn't have all the dates, but it has all the things we're going to be doing, all the activities, and you can kind of keep up with this, and you can anticipate when different things are going to be signing up. Take a chance to look through this whole area. I know some of us have kids, and some of us don't. Some of us have kids out of the home, and some of us still have kids in the house. And so not every page will necessarily apply to you, but there'll be several pages that do apply to you. So take the time to look at this, see what's going on in the life of the church, and get ready to sign up. We've got some incredible things coming up. And to hear more about this, you'll want to be here on Sunday, August the 27th. Don't miss that service, all right?